All right. Well, welcome to Sedaris. Uh, my name is Dave. I am the husband of the announcer today. That was my wife, Allie, and, and that's how you should refer to me, <laughs> Allie's husband. And so uh, they've asked me and allowed me to come up here and share a message from the Word of God today. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, would you turn to Psalm 39. If you don't have a Bible with you, you could either look it up on your phone or there's some black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. And if you do grab that particular Bible, we'll be on page 592. Page 592. Oh, sorry, wrong. Not page 592, page 492. Uh, I think there's something about sailing the ocean blue. Okay, page 4, no, 1492, I think it is. Okay, 492. So we're in our last Sunday in the Psalms, uh, not forever, but for this particular summer. Every summer we take a pause from whatever else we're doing, and we, we sit in prayer and reflection in the book of Psalms. So 150 Psalms, and so uh, we do about you know, six to eight every summer, and so uh, sure enough, at some point we'll finish them all, and then we'll probably circle and cycle back through them. But uh, we have come to our last Psalm of the summer, and then next week we'll pick back up or series in the book of John. So uh, we're in the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 7, and so we'll keep walking through that uh, book of the Bible, verse by verse, which is a, which is a beautiful uh, picture of the life and teaching, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so get excited about that. Uh, great, great series to invite somebody that's newer to the faith or not yet a Christian or just curious about Jesus, uh, maybe even has experience in the church, but has been given a poor picture of Jesus. And, and their portrait of the Christ is somehow mistaken or, or incomplete. And so as we slow down and walk through the Gospel of John, we'll get a really great picture. So really encourage you as we're starting uh, the fall and many people are coming home after their travels, uh, invite them to come and, and meet Jesus afresh, anew, and I uh, hope you're excited about that as well. I am very excited to get back into the Gospel of John, so that's going to be great. So let me read our psalm for this morning, and then we will uh, unpack it to the best of our ability. I'm, if you're taking notes, uh, there are note sheets and clipboards and many of the seat backs. You can use that uh, as well, and you could title in your notes, uh, my title for this sermon is An Antidote to Amusement, and that'll become more clear as we go, An Antidote, actually for Amusement. So why would I want that? Well, we'll find out. So let's read together the Word of God here, starting in verse 1, Psalm 39. For the choir director, for Jeduthun a psalm of David. So right here we know this is another psalm attributed to King David. King David. Now, uh, before we read, uh, and we don't have time to do this, but Psalm 38, these were put together because uh, the collectors of all these songs were uh, thinking that 38 and 39 went together. 38 is all about suffering and sickness, uh, also a psalm of David. And then 38 uh, makes sense of that when we hear his conclusion to his cry for help. David writes, I said, remember God, when I said, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept silent even from speaking good. And yet, my pain intensified. My heart grew even hot, hotter within me. As I mused, a fire burned. I spoke then with my tongue, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days, so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long, and my lifespan is as nothing compared to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them, you could add, when they die. Now, Lord, what 
do I wait for? My hope is in you. Rescue me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the taunt of fools. I am speechless. I do not open my mouth because of what you have done. Remove your torment from me, God. Because of the force of your hand, I am finished. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. And then you'll see this insert, Selah, which means pause. So I'll read that again. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am here with you as an alien, a stranger in the land, a temporary resident like all my ancestors. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. God gave me four psalms this by our magical, well, we don't have it up here anymore because we're done with our psalm bingo, and they're all super intense and depressing, (laughs) but beautiful. So why would we finish any different than we started? With a lament, a cry to God, a, a questioning of life's brevity and shortness, And a strange request at the end that God would turn his gaze away from the psalmist. Not, God, turn and see me and see my cry. He says, actually, turn it away for the fury of your wrath against my iniquity is too great. I can't handle it. Spare me. What is going on? What is going on? Let's see what we can see. Okay? So, I've got to start with a little story here and a little question. How many of you are amusement park people? That you love a good trounce around a Disneyland, a Magic Mountain, a Universal Studios? Okay. I am an amusement park person. And so for my 41st birthday, I bought tickets to Wild Waves <laughs> for me and my family. Some of you may say, unhygienic, Dave. I say, get over it. (laughs) Okay, so we went to Wild Waves last Monday for my birthday. And it was a lot of fun. Turns out my boys are also, it's genetic, amusement park people. And man, we got every ounce of riding and sliding out of our day in the park. And... Yet here's the problem with the amusement park. The day always ends, right? And like as soon as it ends, the sadness kicks in. No, 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 no. When will we ever get back? So the solution to the sadness that kicks in for the amusement park people is pay the extra $15 and get the season pass, (laughs) which is what I did. And so then I could tell my boys, don't worry, I got, Dad got the season pass. He splurged, got the season pass, which is actually a 2024 season pass, which gets you the rest of 2023. I believe the deal is still active online if you want to join us. Right? But that's how they get you, because they know the sadness kicks in when you spend a day amusing yourself. When the troubles feel far away... And you're living in that zone of thrill. And so they get you with if just $15 more. Now, there's a good chance I'll lose the passes. I'll forget that I have them. The same thing happened to me with the aquarium. A year later, I haven't gone back. But this is the problem with all amusement. It always ends. And so the only solution is to get back on the roller coaster, find something else to keep you thrilled up. And here's my claim for today, that modern American life has become a 24-7 amusement park. 
true or not true. Every second of every day is caught up in trying to keep you thrilled up, amused up, cheered up. And yet the sadness always kicks in right at the end of each and every ride. So we got to have more of it. It's got to be 24-7. It's got to be instant access. We can't wait for that movie to come out. we got to be able to see it tonight after the last one we watched. Over and over again. So let me ask you this question. How much of your non-working hours, your non-sleeping hours, do you spend trying to entertain or amuse yourself? Just let me pause. Try to do quick math in your head. How many hours, what percentage would you say you spend trying to amuse yourself or entertain yourself when you're not working or not sleeping? Now, some of us may just not sleep anymore so that we can keep entertaining ourselves. Listen, this, we all struggle with this. Me too. I mean, easiest place to look. I won't spend time on it. I mean, Netflix, Hulu, Max, Prime, Whatever. There's a, the million streaming services, and they all must be making money, or else they wouldn't keep making new ones, right? It's incredible. Perhaps your entertainment of choice is the TikTok, the Insta. I'm, I'm starting to act old. The YouTubes. <laughs> Perhaps it's video games. Any football fans in the room? Any football fans? Go dogs! Big win yesterday. The football season is upon us, one of the great time-wasting endeavors of the American male mind, (laughs) and female too, but I am a consumer of football, and these are long games. They take up great amounts of time. My wife dreads the fall because of it. These are filling up the non-working hours, the non-sleeping hours with entertainment. And we know it's entertainment because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, does it? Who wins and loses a football game actually changes nothing in the world. Yet we feel like we're a part of something. I'm not saying don't watch football or cancel all your apps. I'm just saying be cognizant. Am I entertaining, amusing myself, distracting myself from something? Easier now than it ever has been. America and American life is a 24-7 amusement park okay this isn't new though (laughs) this should be good news this isn't new one of my favorite authors blaise pascal a scientist of the 16th uh, century living in france hanging out with the uh, aristocracy of france uh, one of the most leisurely groups uh, we're talking about louis the 16th those kind of folk um who think that cake is, you know, available to all. These are the kind of people you'd hang out with, and he saw the same dynamic happening because the more money you have, the more hours you tend to need to fill and distract yourself. So he is famous. One of the things he loved to write about was what he called diversion. So I'll read you one quote from him. This is a Blaise Pascal quote. Let's see if we can throw that up here. Uh, This is him talking about the distraction of honor. And this is interesting because um, he talks about honor and how our desire to care for our own honor can even be a distraction, a way to fill up the time. So he said this, from childhood on, men are made responsible for the care of their honor, their property, their friends, and even of the property and honor of their friends. They are burdened with duties, language training, and exercises, and given to understand that they can never be happy unless their health, their honor, their fortune, and those of their friends are in good shape, and that it needs only one thing to go wrong to make them unhappy. So they are given responsibilities and duties which harass them from the first moment of each day, and you will say, That is an odd way to make them happy. What better means could one devise to make them unhappy? What could one do? You would only have to take away all their cares, and then they would see themselves and think about what they are and where they come from 
and where they are going. That is why men cannot be too much occupied and distracted. And that is why, when they have been given so many things to do, if they have some time off, they are advised to spend it on diversion and sport and always to keep themselves occupied. And then he finishes this with this very difficult to translate into English from the French quote. He says, How hollow or vacuumous, Pascal was the scientist that came up with uh, the, the idea of, of the vacuum and something always fills the void. So how hollow and full of trash is the heart of man. It's nothing new under the sun. Our distraction, amusement, entertainment, tactics may have changed over the years, but not really. The heart is still the same. When we feel the void, when we feel the vacuous nature and the emptiness of our answers for the biggest questions, we seek to fill them, Pascal says, with trash. Because I can't stand the hollow feeling, the not knowing just gets me. Same for Pascal in his day as it is for us today. So we have to think outside the box because anything and everything can become a diversion or a distraction or an amusement or an entertainment. Anything. Absolutely anything. And many of these things are good. So I'm not saying these things are inherently bad or evil. Pascal makes a distinction. He says none of these things are ontological diversions. So a, a, a football is not in its nature, ontologically, that's what ontological means, in its nature, the very essence of it, it's not a distraction, but it's functionally a diversion or distraction. So it's used as, it functions for many people as a distraction. So you could fill in anything with that. So I was trying to think outside the box. What are some of the really unique diversions, amusements, entertainments that we have today that maybe we don't naturally see? One thought I had is, don't, don't get nervous, if this is you, this is the dating app. I didn't have it in my dating times. Praise God. I don't know what I'd do. The distraction, the diversion, the options, the opportunities, what else could be out there? I'm not saying dating apps are wrong. In fact, many of you have met and I've done weddings, so I'm happy about that. But you have to know why you're using the dating app. You have to be honest with your own heart. Why are you using it? Do you know deep down that you're using it not in order that you might find and give yourself to someone to love, to someone to care for, to find your wife or your husband? Do you know deep down that's not why you're using it, but you're using it to fill the Friday nights, the Saturday nights, to fill the void? To keep yourself entertained. Do you know deep down that you're not really giving that girl a chance when you take her on that first date? And if you are, you're just doing what Pascal says. You are entertaining yourself. So be honest. The great Theodore Tolstoy, the author, Russian author of Pride and Prejudice, the brothers Karamazov, amongst other things, wrote this in his book, The Confessions. He wrote this about how even something as good as marriage and children can be used as a distraction from the reality of life. He wrote this. I think we've got that up for you as well. Yes, Tolstoy wrote, The new circumstances of a happy family life completely diverted me from any search for the overall meaning of life. He's talking, this is Tolstoy talking, how when he got married, this happened to him. If you know anything about Tolstoy, this should really make you wake up. He says, for me, it diverted me from any search for the overall meaning of life. At that time, my whole life was focused on my family, my wife, my children, and thus on a concern for improving our way of life. There's a distraction. Now, of course, marriage and kids are amazing. We just talked about what a blessing they are, what a gift from God. But yet they can be used by you, if you're not careful, as a diversion from searching out and living in the reality of the overall meaning of life. 
In fact, sometimes the greatest responsibilities can become the greatest distractions. In fact, not only the greatest responsibilities, but even lots and lots of little responsibilities added up. So sometimes what we do is we make all sorts of little problems for ourselves, and we add up all those little problems, and we focus on them, and then we think about them, and we obsess over them in order to distract us from the really big problem, which the psalmist talks about, that my days are only inches long, that death is around the corner for each and every one of us, that I somehow have to come to terms with who I am as a human being, a creature with the ability to conceive of a maker and a creator and to explore the universe and what does that mean and how does that guide. And I don't like to think about those things. They could be overwhelming, so I add up little problems or big problems or little responsibilities or big responsibilities or entertainments or whatever it is to distract myself in the 24-7 amusement park of life. So, what is distracting you? What is your amusement of choice? I am a great lover of the game of golf. Perhaps you are a lover of the game of cricket. And I thought, how interesting that these are the fancies of the rich. Because the longer they are, the more they distract. So I have to be honest with that. 18 holes, why not nine? I don't understand it. Cricket games can last up to five days. The British love cricket, so it's okay to go after them. How are these games invented? It's by those with much time to kill, much distraction to be had. Perhaps your amusement of choice is vacationing, hiking, cycling. These can all be forms of pure entertainment if done so as the pri- uh, with the primary goal of just filling the weekend or filling up your time or distracting yourself from other things. And again, these things, leisure, rest, sport, storytelling, all of these things are good in and of themselves but can be used in an unhealthy way. And no one, and I mean no one, was better at amusement than a man named Solomon who became king of Israel, who was, in fact, the son of King David, who wrote Psalm 39. Now, some of you may be, I know where he's going with this, but who was Solomon? The richest, the wisest, the most powerful, in a worldly sense, of the kings of Israel. He was living in B.C. 960 to 930, about, or 920 about, so about a 40-year reign. Uh, He built many things. He expanded the empire. He uh, built the temple in Jerusalem. And in fact, I, I just thought of this as I was thinking of Solomon. For him, building projects became a great distraction and a great source of his time and energies. And probably... Of course, the temple, I believe, ended up being a good thing, but perhaps many of his other building projects became just forms of entertainment or diversion. For what do you do when you amass much wealth? I guess we must build many things. Nothing new under the sun, right? Just look at the cranes in downtown. Not only did he build many buildings, he also built... Many problems for himself, for he was a notorious womanizer. Many wives, many concubines. Hundreds upon hundreds, they reported. Food and wine in abundance, parties at the palace. King Solomon was a restless soul, filling his life with amusements, entertainment, and diversions in many forms, perhaps because he was running from something. So why do I bring up Solomon, the son of King David? Well, there is another book in the Bible, in the wisdom literature, the book of Ecclesiastes. There's three books known as the three wisdom books. There's Uh, Proverbs, 
which is sort of a positive view of if you live your life based on good wisdom, good things will happen. But then there's Ecclesiastes that's a little bit more honest view of even if you follow good wisdom, we can't quite understand how life will turn out and and, and sometimes it just seems to all be vapor. And then there is that word, vapor. Vapor. Did you see that word anywhere else? Did you see it in Psalm 39? Let's look at it again. Look at verse 5, verse 6, and verse 11. So in the 13-verse song, we have vapor, which is the Hebrew word hevel, three times. Three times. We are only as a vapor, the human being, King David says. Indeed, we rush around in vain, he says. That word vain is also hevel, a vapor. And then in verse 11, we see it one more time. Every human being is only havel, a vapor. Okay. So you guys know I like to bring songs into my ser- sermons, right? I've done it a couple times this summer. I didn't just learn that. Guess where it came from? My father. We have a little game we play in our family where every time my father quotes a song or references a song, we have to, you know, take a sip of the wine. <laughs> and we have to be careful because he's quoting dozens of songs every dinner. Why do I say that? I say that to say kids listen to their dads. Whether they know it or not, they become like their dad in one way or another. And so could you imagine King David singing his songs, reading his poems aloud, his son perhaps listening in and hearing his dad talk about the hevel of life, the vapor of life, the shortness of life, the brevity, the smoke of life that you can't quite cling on. And as he chases and runs away from that idea his whole life and he builds up this elaborate system of entertainment, all he can do when he gets to the end of his life is realize perhaps dad was right, life is but a vapor. And if the scholars, most of them are right, we don't know for sure who wrote Ecclesiastes, but many and most think it's King Solomon. He's the teacher of Ecclesiastes. If that's true, it wouldn't surprise you that 38 times the author of Ecclesiastes uses the word havel, vapor, like father, like son. He too has realized That this life, though we want to control it and hold on to it, is not something that we can control or hold on to. And so there is this inescapable link between Psalm 39 and Ecclesiastes. The same themes come about. Famously, uh, as the CSB translation has it, the the second verse of Ecclesiastes says, Absolutely futile, says the teacher. Absolutely futile. Everything is futile, which is Havel, says the teacher. Havel. Everything is Havel. You've maybe heard it translated as meaningless or vanity. Vanity, says the teacher. Vanity. Everything is vanity. So this word Havel, I think, is more properly translated both in our psalm and in Ecclesiastes as vapor. Or this idea of breath. Or this idea of smoke. Or this idea of the enigma of life that you just can't quite grasp it. You don't quite know what's going on. And so this great and haunting theme is recaptured in Ecclesiastes. Perhaps the son finally realizing the father is right. So I wanted to show you a Bible project video that gives you, in six minutes... All of Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes is very difficult to understand, so I hope some of you might even go read Ecclesiastes after this, but I want you to see it explained, or else it could crush you. (laughs) Like, it could crush you, because it's so honest. And so I'm going to show this video, and if you don't know about the Bible Project, they have hundreds of these little videos that help you understand a book of the Bible, or a theme of the Bible, or a word in the Bible, in a a short, animated, uh, well-narrated expression so that you can really get 
what's going on. And if you watch that before you read the book of the Bible, I think it'll help unlock the Bible. So I want to show this video in part because I want you to know about the Bible project. So we're going to show this video, watch it, and then I'll be back up. We're exploring three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they're all asking the question, what does it mean to live well in this world? So we've looked at Proverbs, who you could think of as a bright young teacher. She's all about pursuing wisdom, an attribute of God that's woven into reality. And she's optimistic that if you use wisdom, you will build a successful life. But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp middle-aged critic. And he says, You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices. So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the one who's collected the critic's words, and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word. So why does the author want us to hear from the critic? Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down, and he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Yeah. So the first is the march of time, or as the critic says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth, it's been here long before us and will be long after. No one remembers people from long ago, and all the people yet to come, they too will be forgotten by those who come after them. So, on a cosmic scale, you and I, we are just a blip. Stars are born, and then they die and form planets which orbit new stars, and those planets, they change over time and eventually turn up. And amidst this cosmic backdrop, my entire existence is like a blink in time. Which leads to the critic's second disturbing observation, that we are all going to die. Humans face the same fate as the animals. Death. All people. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, those who offer sacrifices to God and those who do not. They all share the same destiny. All this activity and madness, then we all join the dead. Man, this book is depressing. And so is the final disturbing thing for the critic, and that is life's random nature. So in Proverbs, life isn't random. There's a clear cause and effect relationship between doing the right thing and being rewarded. But the fact is that life doesn't always work that way. The critic has observed a glitch in the system. He calls it chance, or in his words, The race doesn't always go to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food always come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the educated. Time and chance happen to them all. So his point is that you can't really control anything in life. It's just way too unpredictable. So if I want to master life... Then you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now, throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. Nearly 40 times, he says that everything in life is hevel. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. Like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious. It takes one shape, and before you know it, it takes a new shape. And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through your fingers. And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly. Now our modern translations have lost the metaphor, and they usually translate pebble as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing, it's disorienting and uncontrollable. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, surprisingly, the critic first of all acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. He says it's a really good idea to learn wisdom and to live in the fear of the Lord. Really? I mean, he just said that doesn't guarantee success. But he knows it's the right thing to do. But secondly, and more often, he says that since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really only have control over one thing, and that's your attitude towards the present moment. Stop worrying, he says, and choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, or the sun on your face, or a good meal with people that you care about. The simple things in life. Yes, and both the good things and the bad, because both are rich gifts from God. 
And that's the surprising wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Listening to the critic is painful and can lead you into some dark places. And that's why the author speaks up at the end of the book. He doesn't want you to lose hope. He wants to make you humble into someone who trusts that life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it, that one day God will clear the heaven and bring his justice on all that we've done. And so he tells us that the proper response to all of this is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now there's one more voice in the Bible's wisdom literature, and that's the book of Job. And he will bring us the final, much-needed perspective on our journey into wisdom. Hey, thanks for watching this video. We make a lot more videos like this one here on our YouTube channel, so check them out. So check them out. <laughs> they are uh, based out of Portland, Oregon, so they're good Pacific Northwesterners like us who love the Bible, love the gospel, and have made it accessible. So, Hevel. And they bring up an interesting point that they say when you read, and, and if you haven't read the book of Job, this could also lead you into depression, but when you lead, read some of the wisdom about our lack of control, our, our lack of even if we do the right thing, we might not always get the result we want, it could lead us into depression or even nihilism. So we'll talk about in a second why this psalm and Ecclesiastes aren't nihilistic. They don't lead us to utter meaninglessness and purposelessness and we have nowhere to turn or it doesn't matter and so why try? It actually leads us somewhere else and so we'll see that in a second. But before we do that, I want to ask the question, why is Psalm 39 so important? And you could add Ecclesiastes to that as well. Why are these books that are, some of us might say, way too honest, why are they so important? Well, they're important because they're starting startlingly honest. And so the question I want to ask is, why isn't the world telling us this? Why does the world try to keep from us thinking about the brevity or the shortness of life? Why does the world not want us to think about death, the ubiquitousness of death, that death has a perfect win count, 100%? those who have lived have died. Why doesn't the world want us to think of these things? Why doesn't the world want us to think about the reality of eternity in light of the shortness of this life? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. First, thinking of these things spoils much of the world's fun. And the world doesn't like that. It also makes us much harder to manipulate. If you know that life is eternal, you might just make decisions about how to use your time and your money and even sacrifice for someone, knowing that this life is not all the life there is to live, and so it becomes harder to manipulate. Another answer is that the flesh is unable to think about eternal matters. Do you remember back in our series in 1 Corinthians? We talked about this. We've, uh, we've got a quote here from 1 Corinthians. You can go back and listen to a full sermon on this passage. But 1 Corinthians talks about the flesh, and when it talks about the flesh, it means the part of us that is uh, just, just natural or, or uninformed by the spiritual or by the Spirit of God in particular. 1 Corinthians says this, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, this is the Apostle Paul talking, announcing to you the mystery of God, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not made of persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this, of this age, who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in the mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, 
What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the Spirit, that's the person who's just of the flesh, does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. So we, st- we studied this, this peculiar wisdom of Christ, and how those who are still just in the flesh, we all have the flesh and some have the spirit, but before you have the spirit, you literally can't understand the things of eternity, the spiritual wisdom of God. And so it should not be surprising that the world doesn't want us to ask this question, for the flesh doesn't want us to ask this question, because the flesh wants us to focus on the flesh and keeping the flesh right, and not doing anything to endanger the flesh. But of course, the Spirit will call us at times into danger, for God is doing something that we cannot see. The fourth reason, I think, is because there is a spiritual enemy, and His name is Satan. You'll see that in the book of Job. We also call him the devil. These are spirits who were once worshipers of God, angels who have decided to rebel against God and now are at work distracting and diverting because they hate us pondering such things as the glory of God and the reality of eternity and the brevity of life, and they want us to focus in on the here, the now, and ourselves. So the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire to keep us distracted, entertained, and you might say amused. So I've kept using this word amused, and I'm using it intentionally. What does amusement actually mean? Well, it's ah-muse-ment. You know what muse means? It's actually in the passage, muse. To muse means to ponder, to meditate, to think, dare I say, consider. The greater things, the transcendent things, the less obvious things. That is to muse. Do you know what ah or a, the prefix a, what does it mean? It's the negation of. It means not or no. So amusement means to not muse, (laughs) to not think, to not ponder, to not meditate, to not consider. And so why is Psalm 39 and Ecclesiastes and the like, why are they so important? Ecclesiastes, the teacher that they talk, or the author, as he gives his summary, explains it well. So let's read that. Ecclesiastes 12, 10 to 11 says this. This is the very end of Ecclesiastes. Now the critic, in the video, the critic has stopped talking and the author now gives sort of a concluding remark. He says, the teacher or the critic sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. What's he saying? He knows. So this is the author sort of commenting on everything the critic said. He says, I know these things are hard to hear. I know they prick you. I know they shock you like a cattle prod. I know they wake you up. I know they're like nails that you step on them and you scream like in Home Alone. I know this, and that's intentional. Because when you actually pause and think and meditate and allow yourself to muse on the world and the way it actually is, only then can you move into more life and true life. So Psalm 39 and Ecclesiastes is a song that must remain on the lips of the people of God who live in the light of all reality, 
even though we don't understand it all, even though there's a part of this that doesn't make sense to us or doesn't seem fair or why would God do it this way, we must live in the light of all these realities because honesty does breed freedom. The freedom needed to live life now and to not put off those things that matter most, we need these cattle prods, these nails that we step on, these pebbles in our shoe that remind us, wait, why are we just amusing ourselves to death? It's folly to live outside of the wisdom and the revelation of Psalm 39 and Ecclesiastes. Or you could say it this way. You could say it's like the beginning of wisdom is to acknowledge that life is brief, that death is coming soon for us all, that eternity is real and it's just around the corner. Because only then will you begin to apply your heart, which should be the heart of wisdom, to live life now with a recognition of the utter realness and in utter Reverence, that's what to fear the Lord means, to live in utter reverence to your maker, the one who has given you life and design. And until you start to do that, you won't live into what he's created you to live into. So it's the beginning of wisdom to remember Psalm 39 and everything that the psalmist says, even though it can be quite startling. So is it nihilistic? To think like this and to, to always be pondering the brevity of life and that you're just a breath away from death. And, is that nihilistic? Let me show you why it's not. There's another author who writes something very similar to what David writes in Psalm 39. Now, we don't know how inspired this author was by Psalm 39, but when you hear the words, you might think, I think he's a student of the Psalms. So this is a line from a speech by King Macbeth in Shakespeare's great play. Let's read it and listen to the sameness and can you hear the difference? Macbeth says this, this great nihilistic rant. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time And all our yesterdays have lighted fools. The way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Is Macbeth, this is a very nihilistic view, the meaninglessness of life, the brevity of life, uh, it's all coming to nothing. Is this the same view, King Beth says King David's? I don't think so. And I think the answer lies in verse 7. So look at Psalm 39 again, verse 7. After he said many of the same things about the brevity of life, human beings are but a vapor, we are but a mere shadow. We rush around in vain. We don't know who gets all of our possessions when we die. He says this, verse 7, because he is not trapped in nihilism. He says, now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. This isn't hopelessness. This is honesty infused with hope because David knows that God is a kind of God who keeps his promises, that he's a kind of God that never gives up on those he has called to himself, that David has experienced the character and the realness of God, this God who is a God of hesed love, this enduring love, this unconditional kind of love. And although David doesn't know how God will restore him, he knows that God is a God who restores, who redeems, you might even say who resurrects. So listen to these cries in verses 8, 10, and 11. What does he say? He says, rescue me from all my transgressions. So this is interesting. He's moved from this general sense of the shortness of life, the brevity of life, to some very specific things about his own transgressions. He says, rescue me from them. He says, rescue me. Do not make me the taunt of fools. 
So David knows that he has sinned against a holy God, and he even knows that there are folks who know that he sinned that taunt him because of it and say, why are you so sick and downcast and close to death? It must be because of your sin. So David doesn't deny. He lives in the honesty of his own sin. He says, yes, I've sinned, God, but rescue me from my transgression, from my sin, and from the taunt of fools. Then in verse 10 he says, please, God, remove your torment from me. Because of the force of your hand, I am finished. He knows that the wrath of God will finish him. He knows that God's promise in Genesis chapter 2, that if you sin against me and rebel against me and do not keep my righteous way, that death will come and you will be finished. He gets that and he says, rescue me and remove the torment. The the feeling of my consequence for my sin is tormenting me. So David Here, you might say, feels the weight of guilt and shame weighing on him. It's burning into him. You you hear the language of burning early on the psalm. He's saying, I know that I've sinned against you. I feel that guilt, that shame of rebellion. And no matter what, that never goes away for the human being. I mean, we try to take it away by technologies. We try to take the consequence of sin away. We try to erase them through psychological tricks. But at the end of the day, everyone knows that in some weird sense, they've sinned against someone, and someone much more holy and eternal than they. Why is that? David knows that. He's tormented by his guilt and his shame. Now, verse 11, he says, you discipline a person, I want you to circle a person, with punishment for iniquity, consuming them like a moth. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity. So David is saying, I know I'm a sinner. I feel the weight and, of guilt and shame, and I feel the consequences that are, that are pregnant in my sin, and I feel it, and I know it's bringing me to an end, and I know that a, a person must be punished for iniquity. I know all this, God. And yet I still cry out to you, verse 13, turn your angry gaze from me, so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. So he's not denying that he will die and be gone, but he's saying between now and then, could you turn your gaze away from me so that I might live life now cheered up to your goodness and the good gifts you've given me rather than the weight of guilt and sin and the consequences of my transgression? I don't know how you're going to do that, God, but can you turn away your gaze from me and put it somewhere else? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a great cry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God did exactly this for each and every one of us. He turned his gaze from us, the burning gaze of the holiness of God that will consume us like a moth for our real transgression and sin. It it will make an end to us. And God, in his grace and mercy, turned his gaze, looked away from us, and where did he look? He looked upon his son, Jesus Christ. He turned his gaze on himself. And the son, Jesus Christ, a person who lived and breathed and never once sinned. God turned and looked at him, laying on him all of our transgression, all of our punishment, all of our torment, and all of our taunt. He listened to David, and he turned away, but he had to turn somewhere, to some person. He couldn't just forget because he's a holy, perfect, omniscient God. He had to turn to someone, and he turned to the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in the flesh, and he put all of that on Christ on Calvary's cross. So that, so that what? We could be rescued, that I could be rescued from eternal death so that I would have my guilt and shame removed and that weight could be taken from me so that he could bring me home one day from my wandering as a stranger in a strange place 
like the psalmist says. And I could have that true sense of I'm home when I'm with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, how we can live now because of this truth with what? Great cheer. Do you see it? Because of what God has done for you, for me, by the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus, we can now live free from that and live in cheer and joy now, not just in the future. Now we get to experience that feeling of freedom, that recognition of our God again. We don't have to turn and hide from him. We can look at him again, and his gaze will not kill us because when he looks at us, he sees Jesus in his sacrifice. That's the gospel. It's right here. But we wouldn't get there if we, if we weren't honest about life and about its brevity and about eternity and about the realness of sin and transgression and about how he, we have rebelled and sinned against our maker and our God. So when we get honest, then, only then, can we live in cheer. So some of you love Ecclesiastes, <laughs> and you love deep, depressing philosophy like I do, but you have no cheer because you don't understand and see the gospel in it. Actually, those who understand the brevity of life and the nearness of death and the reality of eternity, and they feel it, they actually are the ones with the most cheer if they know Jesus and what he's done. So let me just give you quickly three questions to ask. Are you using amusement to hide from someone or some truth or some question that scares you? Are you using amusement? Just like Pascal warns. I've got one more Pascal quote. I've got to share it because I love Pascal. Pascal talks about the abyss. First he says, Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided, in order to be happy, not to, not to think about such things. <laughs> and then later in another thought, he says, We run heedlessly into the abyss, that's death, into the abyss, after putting something in front of us to stop us from seeing it. So there's a cliff over there, there's an abyss over there, and we're running towards it because we've got some phone or book or amusement in front of us. And he's writing this hundreds of years ago. Are you running? Are you hiding from some thought? Don't do it. The truths of Ecclesiastes and Psalm 19 will not crush you because they crush Jesus instead. You can look at them right in the face and it will bring cheer. Second question. Are you spending enough time in graveyards? Uh, I was reading this passage with my wife, Allie, and she said, Dave, you've got to tell them about the graveyards. I said, what do you mean? She says, when I was doing college ministry, uh, I was given a task, and the task went like this. I want you to give a short devotional talk um, about life and death, and, and oh yeah, by the way, you're going to be giving that talk to a bunch of interns while standing in a graveyard. <laughs> And she said, okay, that sounds intense. Yes, it's intense. And so she told me about, I said, well, what did you talk about? And she said, when I got there, this wasn't what I was planning to talk about. When I got there, what struck me about each of these uh, tombstones was the dash. Born here, died here. What's in the middle? The dash. Your life is a dash, she said. What are you going to do with your dash? What's your dash going to be all about? We all get a dash. Very short line. What are you going to do with it? Who are you going to give your dash in service of? My wife is very profound, if you don't know that. Ecle uh, Psalm 19, Ecclesiastes, they're tough medicine. They don't always go down easy, but they help. They cure us from a life lived pursuing amusement and entertainment alone. And they just might lead to a very meaningful dash that you're proud of, that makes God smile. What's your dash? Third, do you know that life, that its brevity, that death's ubiquitousness, 
the closeness of eternity, that you're not in control, that these are actually freeing truths. Think about this. Do you know that they're freeing truths? They're freeing truths because they tell you not that you have no agency, because you do have agency. You have the agency of your dash. But they tell you that you're not in control, and so that you can live free from trying to control the results, or the longevity, or your legacy, or the meaning. God controls all of that. God brings the results. God lets you know how long those results will last in human history. And God will put meaning to your work. You don't control those things. God is in control. Now, you have the choice to work and to act. So you have agency, but not of those other things. And so, one of the things that can happen when you realize that life is short and you don't know when death's coming and your life is but an inch long compared to God himself and his eternality this can actually become very paralyzing because you don't want to mess it up. You don't want to, ru- you don't want to ruin it. Now, I, I want to tell you, these are freeing truths. You should not live in paralyzing anxiety because you know that your job and your job alone is to act in each and every moment towards righteousness. Do the right thing and the right, for the right reason in the right way, and when you fall short of that, that Christ has actually covered the gap. So you can be free to act and move and even make mistakes as you seek the will of God. And so it is, as the author of Ecclesiastes say, we can live now in this moment fearing God in reverence to our maker and creator. We can trust and obey his commands that he's given to us through scripture and we can work hard and enjoy life with great cheer, for we know it is finished. Let's pray.